This episode of Unfinished Business is brought to you by GoSlab, synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing taken to the next level, and by Slide and Stage. Become a better presenter with this full-day intensive masterclass with Aral Balkan. I'll tell you more about them later in the show. So I've got a question. Go. What exactly did you name your Wi-Fi network? We, we went with a really boring option in the end. So it is now, this is not a Wi-Fi network. How did you come up with that? Out of all the possibilities. Well, the thing is that it's, we've, we've just moved in and so we've got lots of new neighbours and it's a, um, it's a building with a lot of flats surrounded by a lot of buildings with lots of flats. And so it's a great way to introduce yourself to your neighbours if you have something really bad. So someone suggested beware of the dog, which would have been funny unless people actually started bewaring of the dog too much and um, thinking that I had some big scary dangerous dog which he could look like he was scary and dangerous even though he's not and I saw uh, something on I saw something on the BBC about passive aggressive Wi-Fi networks <laughs> that's a brilliant one yeah Jeremy uh, Jeremy Keith told me a great one that he had uh, when he was in I think he said he was staying in an Airbnb apartment in Berlin I think and uh, someone's Wi-Fi network was, um, we can hear you having sex. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that a few times. And there's somebody, I was looking at on the BBC, and somebody had, stop stealing my paper. And then the other, another network appeared that was, you know, for your information, I don't read it, I just throw it away. Which is quite <laughs> cool. I've got That's this, good. I've got this little system, because I've got, I've got loads of networks, because I've got, um, my main network in the house is called Planet of the Apes. Because, you know, why wouldn't it be? Of course. And then I have a repeater upstairs that extends the network, and that's Rise of the Planet of the Apes because it's upstairs. Uh, I see. There's the thing. <laughs> that's <coming>. good. <laughs> There's a thing. And often I have an airport extreme under my desk when I'm traveling just for kind of um, testing networks and stuff. And that's beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and then I've got the one on my little MiFi that I carry around that's Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I wrote how a blog post do, how about do you this. how do you remember which are which? The um, fairly similar names. Because I know the movies, so I just kind of know which ones are which. But I'm gonna if I ever get more than seven, six um, networks, I'm gonna be completely screwed. You have to start making films quicker. <laughs> well, no. Funny enough, I had to um, create a network while I've been away in Germany this week. Um, so they give me a, a Ethernet connection. But, of course, you know, that's not got any good for me, iPad and iPhone. So I just stick the Ethernet in the Mac and then create a new Wi-Fi network. And I've called this one Dawn, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes because that's going to be the new movie. So yeah. there we go. It's really, I mean, it's just ridiculously stupid. But it's nice to have interesting names for things. It makes everything a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I know. And yeah, I'm just looking around here. Let's click on my airport. What do I see? couple of talk talk networks there's like a thompson router next door i think that's boring people have got no imagination yeah. we just have a lot of bt hub or bt home hub over and over again <laughs> uh, i just think you could be really good you could if you're in an apartment building you could just be like stop by number seven for coffee yeah you that'd could be use quite friendly a, yeah you don't have to be kind of me is murder or something <laughs> that was another one i saw I saw you tweet this week, dear JJ Abrams. Would you like a little bit of Star Trek with your lens flare? Yes. Did you? Is this the first movie you're talking about, or Into Darkness? No, this is Into Darkness. I thought there was a lot less lens flare on this one than the last one. Really? Maybe I noticed it more. I think I'd watched an episode of Fringe before, and do you watch? Have you seen Fringe? No. That's another JJ Abrams thing. It's very good a TV series, and. Um, I think the lens flare is very noticeable in that as well. And so I think I'd been, it sort of made me more in tune with the lens flare. And I was noticing it all the time. It was, uh, it's, I, I don't really have a problem with it. I, I find it, it's so much, it's quite comical in a way. Mm. I, you know, I, I noticed it in the first one, but I didn't notice as, as much in Into Darkness. I'll tell you what I did watch the other week, which was just murder for it, was, um, Battlestar Galactica. Blood oh, and Chrome. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen Blood and Chrome. Yeah, well, obviously they made it like way after mm. the, they made the TV series and all of the backgrounds are all CGI. So there's very little actual kind of, you know, real people in it. 
Oh, okay. Real backbones in it. And it's all oh, lens flare everywhere. It's just terrible. Yeah, that's the thing. It can, it adds realism if you use it so much. But then if you, yeah, if you go too far, it's too obvious. Uh, the trick is not making it obvious. Mm, no, I didn't. I had to turn off Blood and Chrome in the end. We watched about halfway through and then I just thought, oh, I can't be bothered with this. And you're a fan of the original series? What, the original original? No, okay, sorry. The the remake series of oh, Battlestar yeah. Galactica. But we were late to it. We didn't watch it until like five years later. Oh, until yeah, it all I, finished. I don't think I watched it. Yeah, same here. I don't think I watched it till a couple of years ago. And then um, we bought the DVD box set and couldn't put it down. We were like watching like three episodes a night. Yeah, I was doing exactly the same thing. I think I didn't realise how long the pilot episode was and ended up staying up until I think two or three in the morning just because there was no point at which you felt like you could stop it. No, it was ace. Oh, it's brilliant. It, I I don't know if there's anything that's stood up to that since. I've watched a few things. We've been watching Justified, oh, which right, is okay. pretty good. Um, and we watched the first season of Homeland a few weeks ago. Oh, I do like Homeland. That's very good. But I haven't seen the second season because it's not available on US iTunes and my account is a US iTunes account. Oh, so I haven't annoying. seen the second one yet. So spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't seen it, go and make a cup of tea or something. But what did you think of Into Darkness? Are you a Trekkie? I am a Trekkie. Um, I liked it. I didn't, th- I, I preferred the first one, I think. Um, I just felt like it had less substance this time around. To be fair, I liked it more than the other people I was with um, who saw it. Um, he thought it was terrible. <laughs> so, um, but I, I thought it was very, I thought it was enjoyable. There were some strange decisions in there. Um, but I, I, overall, I think it was enjoyable. What did you think? I loved it. Every minute. I thought it was the best Star Trek movie since, well, probably First Contact. And then Wrath of Khan before that. I thought it was. You're, ace. you're an original Star Trek fan then, aren't you? Well, of course. Original I'm series. Old, Cause I'm old. But, you know. I can't, I can't bear the original series. Oh, no, it's, uh, you see, what I like about these movies recently is just those little kind of references. I mean, it's not too overt, but there's just some little things, both in terms of, you know, storylines or characters or in the performances as well. Um, I don't, I'm really not a big Simon Pegg fan, and I really don't like him as Scotty. It's it's too much. It just annoys me. It's like it's a comedy accent, and that's it. But I tell you who I do love, and that's Carl Urban as as um, as Bones. And is is that because of the original? Because you like that so much? Because I found that Carl Urban was the. I, I don't think it was his fault. I think the acting was good, but he had the worst lines. He had the cheesiest lines of everyone. Yeah, but then DeForest Kelly had the same, really. So I, I really like Carl Urban in it because he doesn't try to be DeForest Kelly. He tries to play the character. And there's just little nuances in the way that he says things. That the, It's just like a young DeForest Kelly. It's brilliant. Love it. I didn't think, I didn't think that they needed to have Leonard Nimoy in it. Aside from the fact that everything's made better with a little bit of him in it. Um, I, did, I, did, I didn't no, think it added I, I, anything to the plot. As part of the story, it, it, if anything, it took away from the plot because it it gave too much away. I mean, he's... he's oh, sorry to anybody that hasn't seen it, but, you know, tough. <laughs> he kind of calls him up. He calls up his older alter ego and says, you know, hey, this Khan guy, is he... Did you come across him? And, I mean... What's, what's Leonard Nimoy going to tell him apart from, you know, listen, it's an evil dude. Yeah. Which is, you know, he could have probably figured out for himself. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very strange. I think it was just to try and squeeze the cameo in. What I was really disappointed in was the second that they mentioned the Klingons, I was really hoping for a Michael Dawn cameo as Worf. Mm. Um, and apparently, looking on IMDb, they did actually ask him to do something, but then they cut it out because uh, they cut out the idea because they were like, actually, no, we don't want to have too much referencing uh, older characters. I guess because yeah. you have to give everyone a go if you start I know. doing and I don't, I don't, I don't want them to be bringing that, those people back, and I don't want that to be kind of a plot device. No, no, and it was used as a plot de- device there. 
I mean, it was, you know, it was necessary, I think, in the first one when, you know, they brought Spock back. But in this one, I just think it was completely unnecessary. But such a good film. Such a good film. I just love the way that they twisted, they inverted the whole Spock dying, Kirk dying thing from Wrath of Khan. It was brilliant. I was like, I, I just left with such a huge smile on my face for the whole thing. I loved it. I loved it. I, we, we should explain to regular listeners that um, Anna's actually away on holiday. <laughs> she's gone to Amsterdam for a few days. I think she's speaking at a conference. Yeah, she's at Mobilism, isn't she? Yeah. So I'm joined by, by back by popular demand, my uh, my good friend Laura Cowbag, um, for this particular episode. So I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do any comedy this week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I heard those jokes. <laughs> and, well, nobody laughed, which is sad. And I'm not going to do any comedy German accents either, because I got an email from our friend Melanie Lang, who's a, a German lady. And she says that my comedy chairman accent sounds like a gay Frenchman. So <laughs> nice. It wasn't the effect that I, you know, I had in mind. So what's this? Um, this tweet you sent me here. Um, was it Gilbert Townsend? The conspiracy that he wants us to talk about the conspiracy that every designer has to end up in Brighton. Well, not me. <laughs> yeah, everyone except you. <laughs> I've been no. to Brighton once. It's very nice. You've just moved there. I have. It's it's lovely. I'm not, I'm not in the bang in the centre of Brighton, but it's uh, we're right on the coast, and it is much better than where I lived before, which was in Rygate. Which nothing really against Rygate in particular. Um, I just needed a change. And has that had any effect on your business? Clients have, have they said anything, or do they mind? Or none whatsoever. In fact, I think a lot of my clients probably aren't fully aware of the move aside from the fact that it's impacted my internet connection for a bit um, because most of my work is remote in fact I'd say well, at the moment all my clients are remote working and as a general rule most of my clients are remote so wherever I am it doesn't matter so did you do local business before no not so I was actually completely unaware of anything going on in the local area and I always had the impression that there wasn't much to do with the web, but I did find that there was actually a local co-working um, spot that had a few people working in that kind of area. And it's nearish to Guildford, where they have a bit more of a web scene there. Um, but I was actually... Local people were sort of friends and people I knew through other stuff. And whenever I wanted to talk about web stuff, I always ended up going to London or Brighton. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's nothing around here at all, apart from sheep. Um, well, as far as you know, there could be. As far be, as I know. Well the, well, the nature of our, our businesses, you never know if someone's just in their house next door. Well, it was funny. I don't do a lot of these kind of um, local business meetups. I just tended to avoid that kind of stuff. You know, networking events. I'd rather. They're just. They're all a bit, a bit too business cardy. Oh God, I'd suits. rather paint my toenails. You can call me Shirley. It was. I, I just feel really uncomfortable at those kind of things, and I just don't go to them. But I did do one. <laughs> it's a, a couple of years ago or something. I did go to one, um, and they had this speed networking thing on there. Oh my god, you should have seen my face! <laughs> it was where you know you split off into two groups, and then you know half of them sit, half of you sit down, and then the other half kind of move table to table. Oh yeah, oh, for like a minute, like speed dating. Yeah. Oh. God, it was a, it was horrible. But the funny thing was, I didn't have any business cards because I'm crap. <laughs> I had like, I had the one scabby crap old business card that I keep in my wallet in case I lose it, you know, because somebody wants to get in touch with me. Um, so I had that, which is kind of dog-eared thing. Um, so everyone would come along and go, do you have a card? And I'd, I'd have this <laughs> thing that looked like I just picked it up off the floor. Um, oh, it was awful. And you just what, show people your details and say, you can copy you, these down if you like. You can write these down and you take a picture with your phone, which is a really crap thing. I didn't take it at all seriously, which which was wrong, I suppose. But do, you, do you use business cards that often? Well, I'm going to have to get some done because we were talking about this over in, uh, over in Switzerland this week. Because over there, business cards are a big thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with all of these organisations, the big kind of, you know, government organizations that are over there um yeah they you know they'll expect a card so i am gonna have to get some done 
because I, I always get them because they're fun to design and they look pretty. And then I, I have so many of them that I just that build up because I very rarely get rid of them. I'll take them to conferences and never give them out. I'll always say to someone, say, this is my name. I'm this on everything. <laughs> and that's mm. it. Not, we did this thing. We did this thing a, a few years ago where we had cards that just had like my name and contact details on there and then a big blank space. And I would kind of pin like a badge, like a, a stuff and nonsense logo badge to the top. Cause I didn't give cards out willy nilly, you know, you'd be a special client. And then they get like this enamel badge with the card. I think you've seen those little badges, haven't you? I think I must have done. Yeah. I must have one somewhere. Um, and that was quite nice because, you know, I was only ever giving out two or three cards a year. Yeah, that well, that makes it a, a bit more special. Although, what do you what do people do with the enamel badges? Because I've actually built quite a good collection of various people's enamel badges. I'm not sure whether I should make like I don't know, like a girl guide style sash. Um, <laughs> these people kind put of them things. on their people put them on their back laptop bag straps usually, or I, you know, I, on the canvas bags or something. I don't really have a bag that. Maybe I should just have, you know, like the pearly kings and queens. Maybe I should just have like a jacket that's uh, dedicated to badges. Everybody's doing them now. So yeah, you could probably do that. There's just so many. There are, I've got this, I get, I put stickers all over my um, laptop. And so I've got loads of various different stickers from friends and cool companies and stuff like that. And uh, that's the one thing that is easy to stick stuff on. It's I don't. With pin badges. I don't understand how you can do that. I remember Tantec. You've met Tantec Chellic, haven't you? I have, yes. And he was one of the first people that I ever met that covered his Mac lid with stickers. Literally, the whole thing was was covered. And I don't understand how you can do it. It's, it just feels wrong to cover up such a beautiful piece of aluminium with a, with a Mozilla sticker. I I tend to scratch my stuff anyway, <laughs> so it's often it's covering something unsightly underneath. Um, but it's personalisation. I went through a stage, I used to do it when I was at university, and then when I left university I was like, right, I'm going to be a professional now. I'm not going to have any stickers because it stops me from looking professional. And then I decided that I can't pretend that I'm one of those smart and formal professional people. It doesn't really suit me. <laughs> so, mm. so I went back to sticking stickers on my laptop. I I have to have everything as close to factory as possible. I mean, I'll make changes if something annoys me, but mm. I have to keep things as out of the box as I can possibly have them. Like I don't so twiddle it, with stuff. If you've got mostly Apple equipment, that works quite well because it's nice to look at to begin with. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I had some scabby old Dell, I'd probably be covering it in a sack, let alone a few <laughs> stickers. But, you know. So location doesn't matter to you, really. No. No, not at all. I mean, it's, internet connection matters, and it's funny what you said about having a three G connection for was it a week? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think I was I was stuck with it for about two weeks. We we went on holiday either side of moving because that's what clever people do, um, not clever at all, and uh, just to make it a bit more stressful. And uh, so I, it was about. Three Three weeks I had no proper internet connection, and but it was good. I I learned a lot about performance on the yeah, websites. No, it, it does you good. When we were travelling in uh, Japan a few weeks ago, and when we went to to spend the winter in Australia, that's all we had was uh, you know we bought a three G dongle, three G MiFi, and that's what we had for for all that time. We never had a broadband connection, and it really teaches you a lot about performance. Oh, they're brilliant. I think everyone should have one anyway, because you really need that as a backup if your connection goes down. But also, yeah, it's, I've actually, I've noticed myself this week, I've been talking to some developers about um, the JavaScript on their site, and I go, what would happen if it doesn't load? If someone doesn't have enough bandwidth, and things like that, and I'm finding myself actually thinking in those terms now, uh, even more so than I was before with responsive stuff. Um, I've always been very conscious of progressive enhancement for that kind of thing, but it makes you really consider images and things like that. Mm. Oh, man, it's just so important. Was it Brad Frost was linking to, I forget which site it was now, was it the Oakley Sunglasses site that was like, the homepage was 85 meg? 
I can't just, remember which one it was. Now I'll dig it out and put it a link in the show notes. It's, it's all those crazy people that like full bleed photos on giant screens, <laughs> and and then they'll send that full bleed photo to everyone, and uh, that's yeah, not good performance at all. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's good to, I think. Also, I it makes me think whether I should start using a junk mobile phone every now and again to access the web as well, so I can see what things are like when they're not through the fanciest version of mobile safari. Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking about getting one of those uh, Nexus phones, one of the, the cheap Android phones. <laughs> oh, yeah, an- Android, yeah, that's that's a, like a third world phone. <laughs> well, what am I going to do? Third world here, you only have to go to Carnarvon. I, I've got... Um, I, I've got actually, I've got a re- one of those really nice Nokia Windows phones that I should use more, uh, just for a different experience, not necessarily a poor experience. But there were um, people recommended to me Slowy app, which is a app that helps you. Um, it takes your broadband connection and cuts it down, um, so that it emulates a poor connection. And apparently, you can do that through the system preferences on uh, your Mac as well. Huh. So see, you can do that without having the cost of the mobile broadband. See, we only get f- just under four megabits here anyway on our broadband. It's like really slow. Oh, that's slow. I so, don't know how you deal with that. <laughs> well, you know, it just helps to kind of, you know, keep an eye on speed and stuff. But, you know, it's it's what we're used to. Yeah, you don't stream to. video and things like that very much. Well, I watched The Apprentice in HD last night and it came down okay, buffered a little bit. But, you know, it was it was acceptable. That program was terrible, but you know the connection was all right. Yeah, I don't know how you can watch that. Oh, it, <laughs> oh, it winds me up so much. Those people, like, how can it be real? How can any of them be employable? No, They're Muppets. infuriating. Muppets. So, you work from home, but do you get out and see people face to face, or do side by side by side working a lot, or do you mm. tend to do everything remotely? I tend to do most things remotely. I'll try and have. Maybe one or two face-to-face meetings, completely depending on the type of client. Um, often they are small businesses like me, um, where it's actually much easier to just talk remotely and things like that, and we're quite used to doing that. If they tend to be people that particularly aren't used to communicating much over the web, meeting face-to-face is helpful because um, there's so much of a communication breakdown when you're using the web that even if you're on Skype and things like that. And so actually some people really need face-to-face and some people you can make it work regardless. Some people work better over um, email and stuff like that, I think. Yeah, I don't like the distance. I like to speak to people all the time or I like to go there and sit next to somebody. I've been doing this on a little project recently and... I think the amount of time and money that I spent on getting to somewhere was, you know, I saved tenfold in just mucking about, you know, misunderstanding things in emails or whatever. You know, I could just say to say to my client, you know, do you want me to move that to the left or the right? And they go to the left and then you're done. Yeah, I can totally see the value in that. But, you know, I don't know. I don't I, I honestly don't know why we don't do more local business. I don't think it's because of what we do. I think it's because of the, or where we are. I don't think it's because, you know, we live in the middle of nowhere. I think it's the type of businesses and organizations that are also around here. Um, I don't know whether they're, they're not our thing or not. Well, it's, is it because they're not contacting you as well? Because well, a lot of the, I imagine most of the work you get through people contacting you rather than the other way around. Yeah. We don't do any cold calling anymore, which, you know, I did. That's how we started off was literally flicking through yellow pages and phoning people up and going, you know, can I talk to you about your website? Um, but, you know, no, these days people people come to us. But it's it, it's sad sometimes. I went to you know, this business thing where I told jokes last week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no wonder I get any business telling jokes like that. <laughs> and it was funny because, you know, none of those people that were there had, you know, they didn't know anything about what we did. Um, and yet, you know, I can be working for people across the world. So it's a strange old game. It is. I think I love how much the web affords us to be able to work with people you wouldn't be able to work with locally. And so I've worked with people in various different countries around the world. And it's it's great to be able to 
talk to those people and get their opinions. And I remember I did have a client that they were based in New York and we used to have these brilliant calls where we spend ages just chatting about the differences between the UK and the US uh, and various things. It's fascinating. Well, people always used to think, I suppose, that you had to be, you know, you had to have a swanky office in a swanky place. You know, you have to be in Manchester or London or Brighton um, to be anything. Um, is that still the case now? Do people still think that? Or does it really not matter where you are? Oh, no, it do- I don't think it matters at all. And it's quite funny about the tweet saying that every designer ends up living in Brighton. I, I didn't choose to move to Brighton because I had to be where the web things were going on. Um, it was it was completely unrelated to that. <laughs> it was because I wanted to live with someone who lived in Brighton. <laughs> mm. uh, it it wasn't no. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't move somewhere because I thought it was that's where the scene was. But I think you'd probably move there and find you were very disappointed as well. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. And I think it's nice that there's more communication goes on with people that are just scattered about rather than you having to be in one place. Yeah, it means people that are tied to more remote locations don't get left out. I, there, there are better, there are meetups here and various um, things that you can do with people face to face. And that is definitely a bonus um, compared to being somewhere very far away. But I think the fact that there are podcasts and there are um, sort of all, all different means of listening to and talking to people that aren't that are much further away, I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, it is. It's really, really cool. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to live anywhere else. Well, I do. I'd, I'd like to go and live in Perth in Australia because it's warm. Mm, but if yeah, anywhere else in the UK, I wouldn't want to go anywhere else in the UK. This is, you know, this is home. So we've got a new sponsor this week. Oh. Yes, let me tell you about this new sponsor. If you're a responsive web designer or developer like us, yep. I think you're going to be really interested in this one. It's Ghost Lab. Synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing taken to the next level. <laughs> that bit's their tagline, but it's actually true. So here's the problem, right? You're designing or developing a site, and you need to test that site across multiple browsers, and especially now across many different devices like smartphones and tablets. Now, you could set up a local development server, or you could FTP files to an ex- external server, but who wants to do that? Then there's keeping every device in sync while you test, you know, moving around a site, using navigation, filling in forms. You need three pairs of hands. And that's where Ghost Lab comes in. Ghost Lab synchronizes everything across different browsers and devices. And as you do something in one browser or on one device, it happens across all the others instantly. You click on a link in a desktop browser and the same link's pressed on a smartphone. If you type into a form input on a tablet, and it's filled in across every browser or device that's connected to Ghost Lab. It's brilliant. Here's how it works. You install the Ghost Lab app on your Mac and then drag any HTML site into the Ghost Lab window. That's it. That's all you have to do. Ghost Lab does everything else for you. From there, you can open your site in any installed browser or point any device on the same Wi-Fi network to the Ghost Lab IP address. And great part about Ghost Lab is that there's not an app that you have to install on all your devices. It just uses the browser. So Ghost Lab keeps a watch on your projects and it pushes any changes you make to any connected browser or device. And that makes designing using code really, really simple. I've been using Ghost Lab all this week uh, with my client and I can't go back now. It's brilliant. Ghost Lab's not a subscription service. You don't have to pay monthly for the software. You just buy it. I love that. Ghost Lab costs £33 per user, and you can install it on up to two computers, say a laptop and a desktop. That's what I've done. And there are volume discounts available too. And if you use the offer code Unfinished Business, you'll get 30% off Ghost Lab until June 15th. So go to Van Amco. That's V-A-N-A-M-C-O dot com slash ghost lab and get ghost lab. It's great. 
It's really good. I've I've downloaded it and uh, had a look. Oh, it's it's got a very pretty icon as well, which is mm. always a bonus. But how good it, would that be for people with these massive device labs? Or, I mean, even with a few devices, but the more devices, the better as well. You can just get everything loading up exactly the same on all of them at once. Yeah, and do you know what I did this week with my client over in Switzerland, which was just brilliant, was I was demoing um, some navigation design. I'm working purely on navigation design this week. It's all I'm interested in. And I loaded up the design on my laptop and then handed them all of my devices. You know, I took all my iPads and phones and stuff with me. So there's a bunch of people at the client end in the room, all, you know, holding iPads and phones and the, the stuff that I'd taken with me. And I'm driving the demo from my Mac. Oh, that's cool. That is ah. a really good idea. Oh, yeah. Really cool. Although they can just swap them about. It doesn't matter. They don't have to. You don't have to go, now everyone click this. No. Oh, it's genius. Love it. So, yeah, Ghost Lab. So we got some questions. I saw you do a tweet this week asking for ideas for a topic yeah, for us to talk about. Yeah, we got about. loads. Well, I know. It's great. So there was one here um, about how would we start our first ever project. There was a, a tweet from, I'm going to pronounce this really badly, um, Andrew Dennis Chitz. <laughs> I'm pleased that you did it because I, I would have no idea where to start. How about, how would you go about doing your first client projects and the stages involved setup required, asked Andrew. See, I have, a, I have a gripe with design books and things like this that I found, because when I was starting out, I had exactly the same questions. And everything I found was always about starting a redesign or rescuing a project that someone else had started and gone really wrong. And actually very little about starting from scratch. That's one of the reasons why I decided to do a mentoring project and help um, some people with starting a client project for the first time, because I think that's one of the things that it's very hard to learn and find out the best way of doing it. Um, but how, how would you do it? How would you start your first ever client project? I'm thinking back now all these years about, what we did on our first job because our first job ever was for my wife's driving instructor this was in 1996 i think it was and i've still got the files knocking about somewhere i should publish them online oh, it, yeah, used, be interesting to see. it used flash for the navigation and about eight different frames in a frame set oh lovely um i don't know i mean is the question about technically how you set something up or is it about how you set something up in terms of client relationships. I think it sounds like client relationships because I think that's the trickiest thing, isn't it? It's knowing who should say what first. Um, what kind of, what do you need to have agreed between you and things like that? I think that that's, I mean, it's very hard. If I think back to the first client projects I did, I almost definitely did this wrong. And so that's <laughs> maybe not the best, uh, the best way of thinking about it. Um, I mean, I always say one of the biggest problems I used to have with when I started out with client projects was I would always start too soon. I would get very excited like by the idea of the things I had to do and I'd have all these ideas and things like that. And before that even we'd even sorted out a contract or anything, I'd start designing something and drawing out little ideas and things like that and thinking, oh yeah, I've got this all going without even properly asking the client what they needed. Um, I think it's very easy to get ahead of yourself. And I think the one of the important things to remember when you're starting out is to really pace yourself and make sure that you are, you've answered all the questions you, you need to ask at the beginning. All of the who's and the what's and the where's and the why's and the how's and all of, all of those. And make sure you do your research as well before you can properly get a good idea of what needs to be done. I'm still terrible with that though, honestly. I still get really excited about the thought of a new design and I get ahead of myself too easily. Oh, so do I. So is, <laughs> I, th I think it's something you'd never, you'll never be, we'll never be amazing at because we're enthusiastic about the work that we do. And it's nice to be able to think that you're going to get excited about, you know, starting off a new design. And, you know, if we didn't get excited about doing a new design, then, you know, you might as well go work in Tesco. Oh yeah, but I think the important thing is to remember that 
there's probably a lot more questions you need to ask before you actually get started. Because a lot of the time I will get excited and I'll find what I've done is, is very nice, but completely wrong <laughs> because it's, because I haven't actually done the research first. Yeah. So in terms of let's, the practical answer to te- Andrew's question, in terms of sort of stages involved or setup required, um, two things. Well, three things actually contract, contract, contract. Yeah. Definitely. It doesn't matter how big or small the job is. You have to uh, put pen to paper and agree on what the scope's going to be. Yes. Now, that doesn't have to necessarily be a functional spec. Um, it can just be a period of time. I'm going to work with you for this time um, working on this project. Um, but you need to have that stuff written down and deposit as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, and those, I know we ramble on about these things all the time, but... Those are the two most important things, I think. It doesn't matter who you're working for, how big or small. Or if um, they're a friend. Especially if they're friends. Um, you need to have a defined set of boundaries. Otherwise, things can become uncomfortable. You know, and you never want to be in that situation where, you know, where they might be think, they might be uncomfortable saying to you, actually, could we just do a little bit more on this? And you might be uncomfortable in terms of saying, no, <laughs> we've had enough. What do you want? Um, so yeah, it's definitely important to get all of those boundaries set and, you know, contracts, deposit and sit and listen. I think that's the most important thing. Sit and listen, um, to what their expectations are and what they want to achieve. And then you can, then you can get excited to get your crayons out. Yeah. We had another question here, Daniel Tomlinson. Um, asked about finding subcontractors. You've been looking for somebody recently. Yeah, I, I don't often work with um, de- front-end developers because I normally do everything myself. But this particular project, um, the client, I'd originally quoted for it and the client said, actually, I'm going to try and outsource that bit because it would be cheaper, um, which I would generally don't encourage, but I said, fair enough, go for it. And um, it didn't work out with those outsourced developers and they came back saying, can you still do it? And I just don't have the time to do it. It would, it would be irresponsible for me to say yes. So I was like, okay, I'll help you find someone that can do it because I really want, I was really pleased with these designs that I've done and I'd written a huge amount about how I would develop it to ha- try and help the developers on. And so I wanted to be able to pass it on to someone who could make use of that and hopefully be good. And, but it's really tricky because if you don't know, Developers, it's all very well knowing someone that you think is talented, but you don't necessarily know if they're reliable. No, this is the thing. I think that having somebody that you trust is actually more important than their skills. Completely. Because, you know, particularly if if I'm recommending somebody to a client, uh, you know, and I'm not involved in it, you know, I'm not part of the job, is do you know somebody that can do this? It's a huge responsibility. Because, you know, you don't want to recommend somebody and then the client get let down. Yeah, but it will reflect badly on you as well. For whatever reason. So it's really, really hard. But we have all kinds of trouble finding uh, people to work with because I'm a bit picky. Well, I thought I wondered whether I was just being a control freak by being picky. Someone actually accused me of being picky as well. I said, because I said, I'd like the person to be someone I've met yep. because that's a way that I can gauge whether I think that they be reliable or not and also a full-time freelancer yes because a lot of people say they're freelancers but they actually do a bit of work part-time after they finish their full-time job which is fine I, I have no problem with that but those people cannot dedicate the same amount of time as people that do it full-time and so I wanted someone that I know you, I could say can you work on this in the next week? And I know I'm not just getting a couple of hours in the evenings and maybe on the weekend. Yeah, it's really, really important. I mean, we've got quite a lot of work coming up uh, because I'm working on this job in Geneva for WIPO. And at the same time, Sue here is making some really lovely designs for some other clients. So if I'm not careful, if I hadn't have been careful, we'd have ended up with a bit of a bottleneck in terms of code. Yeah. Because our deliverable is always HTML and CSS templates. You know, we don't show, we don't give people PSDs anymore. No. Um, cause you know, we, we do the whole kind of responsive by default thing. And I needed somebody that I could trust. And I didn't want somebody necessarily to, um, 
to work. I wanted somebody to work in a kind of compatible way. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I might have to pick that stuff off in the future. So it needed to be kind of in a style that I understand. And, you know, I am a bit picky about these things. But I also wanted somebody that was in this area. It could have been, you know, it could have been in Welsh Wales. It could have been in the Northwest. It could have been, but, the, you know, I wanted somebody that, that was close enough to be able to drive to. Yeah. So that, you know, we could sit in Starbucks and have a cup of coffee over something and, 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 and talk about it. Um, and I did find somebody actually, Dylan, if you're listening. You're amazing. And, you know, we were very fortunate to find somebody um, that could do that. But also, you know, I've got a lot of friends who live around here and they've done freelance stuff and they still do freelance stuff, but they don't do it full time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I want, that's the best way of putting this, I want to be able to be pushing them. You know, I am paying at the end of the day. It is an important client project. And I do want to be able to, you know, phone up or email and go, is it done yet? And not have to think that they just got in from their day job and, you know. Yeah, you're taking them away from their family. Yeah, heated up some baked beans or whatever. So, yeah, no, I think it's important. I think we're we're thinking along the same lines. Yeah, it's, it is it's tricky. And I think it actually also emphasizes the importance of going to conferences and meetups and things like that. Because that's the only way you're going to meet these people face to face. Definitely. Definitely. I've been um, looking around. There's a new series of meetups that I'm going to start going to in Manchester, um, which I discovered recently because somebody was talking about my beard apparently on Twitter. <laughs> but I'm going to make a point about going to these things, um, not just because I could learn a lot. In fact, I can't. This month they're doing one on GitHub and I can't be there, oh. which is, you know, I really want to learn more about Git. Um, but I'm going to make a point about going to the other ones because – you know, I want to I want to meet new people, and I want to you know find people that we can work with. Yeah, it's the best. It's it's the it's probably should be one of your main reasons for going to conferences. I think that's why I've been a big fan of going to conferences and events since I started freelancing, and it's it's done me very well. And I've met loads of really cool people, and I've worked with a lot of people that I've met. Because sometimes, sometimes you know, you might ask on Twitter, "Hey, does anybody know?" somebody you know can, can anybody can do this yeah and usually you'll get a flood of recommendations but it's really hard isn't it it's really... well yeah because you've got to trust that person's recommend and you probably have completely different sort of levels that you want you want things to be at than that person and completely different things that you care about and also if you do ask any of those questions, you'll get a load of people that are completely unrelated, probably not even following you on Twitter, that just want to hassle you because they want the work. Yeah, I know. I love that. You, you said to somebody, is there anybody in the Northwest that might be able to do this? And then you'll get somebody come along. I'm in, I'm in Nebraska. Does that help? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> but we did find, I have to confess, once um, I asked about an expression engine developer um, and I did get a recommended Stephen Grant, who's up in Glasgow. And we work with Stephen a lot now and he's amazing. So, you know, Twitter is a good source of this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I think you just have to be prepared to do vetting afterwards as well to really make sure you can get to know these people. But I'll tell you what the frustrating thing is, is that often you'll get somebody uh, that will say, oh, contact at so-and-so. And you'll follow the link from their Twitter profile to their website and then there's a dead end. There's only a contact form or an, an email address or something like that. Yeah. I uh, just a phone number. You know, I always want to like yeah. got to have a phone number. I don't care. Portfolios as well. I th- that was a big problem I had. People sending me links to sites that just had a bit of contact information and nothing that I could look at. Yeah, it just make it easy for people. I mean, particularly people like me that, you know, I want to speak to you on the phone. Um, you know, go to buy, buy a crappy pay as you go and, you know, use that number. I admit, I took my phone number off my website. Yeah, no, Anna did the same, but I was, I was, I wasn't getting any serious calls ever. I was just getting a lot of voicemails from recruitment agents. Yeah, you can have fun with people that phone up and cold call though. Oh, but it, it, it's distraction though. Yeah, let it go to answer phone. <laughs> we should talk about our second sponsor for today. You know a bit, little bit about this, I think. This is I do uh, indeed. our next sponsor. It's Slide and Stage. So Slide and Stage is a full day 
interactive workshop that will make you a better speaker, whatever you want to speak about. Maybe you want to be better at speaking at conferences. Uh, you might need to talk confidently about what you do at work, or maybe like us, you need to present ideas to your clients. Well, Slide and Stage is going to help you do that. Slide and Stage is hosted by Aral Balkan, who's one of the best performers I've seen on a conference stage. And he's also a really good conference organizer. So he looks at it from both sides, from the speaking part and from the organizing part. And Aral's poured everything he's learned from over 10 years presenting into this one day event for you. So he'll teach you how to improve your stage presence, posture, body language. Oh man, I need that. Slouching around on stage as I do. <laughs> Um, he'll show you how to breathe better so you can speak better and then get the most out of what you're saying. And there'll be plenty more tips and techniques to help you make your presentations memorable. But it's not all about performing. Aral will also talk about some of the business aspects of speaking, particularly for event organizers. And you'll learn about your rights as a speaker and how to negotiate with organizers to get the best deal. So if you're an organizer or an experienced speaker or someone who's just getting started, Slide and Stage is going to be well worth your time. It's happening in Brighton, UK on June 14th, and it costs only £149. That's a great price. And if you're one of the first 20 people to use our special URL, you'll get 20 quid off your ticket price. So that URL is the link.it s slash unfinished business go to that url and book your spot at slide and stage ah oh, damn it you know i want to go Are you i want to go you can't make it it's one of the weeks that i'm going to be in geneva oh. and i come back on a thursday night um and usually i've landed i'm home by about 7 30 um so there's just no way that i can get down to brighton for the following morning can't you get get up really early and come down? Do you know, I would really, really want to. I'm going to um, be there. Yeah, I'd, I'd really do. I mean, I wonder whether Aral's going to do another one if it's successful. I hope so, and you know, then I'll just blank out the week. It it will be it will definitely be worth it. It will definitely be worth it. I I've learned so much from him in the last year or so. Um, I, the the for two first talks I did um, in the US last year um, before uh, Future Insights, I did two talks in one week, which was probably quite a stupid thing to say yes to, given that they were, I think, my second and third big talk I'd ever done. And he gave me coaching before both of them, and it made such a massive difference. Just all the things you'd never think about. And once you've got those things in your head, when you you feel so much more ready and relaxed when you start speaking because you just know that you've got all of those things nailed. I mean, that's one of the things that often frustrates me about people that complain about, you know, same old faces. I don't want to go over that again. But, you know, none of the people that we know, none of the people that you normally see standing up on stage have had any kind of training yeah. <laughs> at all in how to do that. And it's not just about presenting, it's... Yeah, it's about actually having the confidence and self-confidence to get up there and do it. Yeah, I think very few people are naturally good at that. And I think just because you're really clever and really know what you're talking about, it doesn't necessarily mean you're good about good at talking about it either. No. And it it can take quite a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people get good because they they do it a fair bit and so they learn all of these tricks over time. Um, but actually to be able to just go to an event and be told sort of all these things that have years and years of experience, I think that's going to be valuable to anyone. Who's the best speaker you've ever seen? Oh, it's definitely Earl. He's definitely the best speaker I've seen. I'm, I'm incredibly biased, but I would have said that anyway. Uh, I remember the first time I saw him speak was at Future of Web Design and I I didn't know him then, and I thought he was so good. I went back to my friends who were organising a conference for later in the year, and I said, "You have to get him. He will make your conference brilliant because he speaks with 
such incredible passion that no one could leave the talk without agreeing with him. How much of it is about the accent? Oh, no, no. Really? Because whenever I hear... I I think my favourite speakers, I've got to say, are... And I haven't seen her around more than once, I don't think. But I think my favourite speakers have got to be Jeremy Keith. Yeah. I think Jeremy Keith is... Is and he's got so much better over the years. I mean, he was good to start with. I remember back in 2005 when we all did our first talk at what was at Media, mm. and he was good then. I was hopeless. He was good then, and he's got so much better since. Um, Jeffrey Veen. Yeah, he's good. Uh, I mean, a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. And I think the other best speaker that I've ever seen is Jared Spool. I don't think I've ever seen Jared speak. He's a he's a comic. I mean, he's just he will have a room full of four hundred, five hundred people rolling on the floor. He's just so funny. But I think some of it comes down. I, I mean, I, I watch other people speak, you know, and I'll see Dan Cederholm or Luke Rabluski or you know Aaron Walter, and I love their stuff. But also, I don't know. Maybe it's the the accent that draws you in. Maybe for, for them it's an English accent, you know, maybe, maybe it's the opposite. Yeah, I found this, when I went to um, do Future Insights, that was in Vegas, and the amount of comments just about my accent. I, I could have talked about anything and done the most rubbish talk. <laughs> People would have just been, oh, what an amazing British accent. Someone said that I sounded like Hermione from Harry Potter. <laughs> I think that's just because I have a southern British accent. Well, I want to go to this thing, and I don't think I can, unless I can move my plans around, which I don't think is going to be possible. So I'm really hoping that Aral will do another one yeah, at some point. I, well, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't hold your hopes out. I think um, we'll have to see if this one is successful, but I think that people should try and get on this one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try and move things around. I don't know. I'm not making any promises, but I really, really, really want to get down there. So we had another question on Twitter here from Luke Murphy Weirmouth. Oh, yeah. I said that right. Um, what are the important differences between different types of clients? So direct clients versus agencies, etc. What's been your experience? This is quite funny because Luke works for an agency that I have worked with recently. And I, as a general rule, have a no agencies rule. And I broke it uh, to work with them. And of course, it worked out perfectly okay. <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> no, Luke wouldn't mind me saying this. Um, it, it wasn't bad at all. They're, they're great people and the project was so much fun. Um, but there were a lot of um, problems associated generally with the way that agencies work that made it difficult. Um, things like um, very tight deadlines. Um, also... A lot of the time, the people that quote for the work or tell the client what is possible aren't the people doing the work themselves. And so it can lead to some communication breakdown. Although this wasn't the case with um, this particular agency. They were great at, um, I was doing the website stuff. And so they got me into the meetings with the clients. And that's one of my biggest problems I've had with working with agencies in the past is that there's another, there's a go-between between you and the clients. Yeah, I find that really, really tough. It's it's just not workable because it's it's like having a it's Chinese whispers. You you find out what the client wants through someone who may not speak the same language as you do or as the client does. We had, and I don't mind being honest about this, we had a relationship with a a, a local agency for quite a few years, and. It was a, it was a regular stream of work and I really liked to do it. Although the jobs themselves were never, they never just went as well, as well as I wanted because of the things that you described. Um, and then they came to me a few years ago and they said, look, we've got this project that we'd really like you to work on. Um, we want to pitch for it. We want to do all the branding and, you know, all the brochure work and stuff like that. And obviously there's a web component. Um, will you do it? And the budget was, was low, even for, you know, even for what I knew they wanted, it was low. Um, and every fibre in my being said, walk away. Mm. And so I did. I said no. And then they came back and they said, look, we really want well, it's important to us. Would you really do it? And, you know, we, we, we'd done a lot of other work with them. 
Um, and against my better judgment, I said yes in the end. But I said yes with a caveat, which was if we're going to do this, then we have to run the project our way. Um, you know, if the budget is small, then we need to be hyper efficient and we can't have, well, we can't have any buggering about. Yeah. Which is the stuff that kind of, you know, eats into your time and your profit. So on that basis, I took it on. And unfortunately for everybody involved, it just didn't work out because there was always somebody else in the middle. Mm. And you'd get an account person or a client manager or even worse, actually, when those people are salespeople at the same time. Yeah. And they will just say, generally, whatever they need to say to get the business. Yeah. Um, and it turned out to be a complete nightmare. I mean, it literally, this was, this was the sort of the six months before I wrote Hardboiled. And it literally, it sucked every ounce of creativity out of me. Um, and I just didn't want to do any client work anymore, which is why I spent a year writing that book. Yeah. It's just, I, I, I don't know how, um, how agencies carry on really. I think it's such a boom and bust way of working. I, I think you have to really have a great team that really understand what each other do and really great communication with the client because otherwise I don't know how people don't just run themselves into the ground. Well, we, we had things like they would provide, the agency would provide PSDs, which they'd already had signed off by the client, mm, you know, yeah. as, as part of a, an overall kind of branding package or something like that. And you'd look at it and go, that's not how I design it. You know, that doesn't make sense. That, that navigation's completely hopeless. Um, and, you know, yet they would still, you know, they'd, they'd still gone through that process where they'd had everything signed off, you know, before they gave it to us. Um, so I won't do it anymore. Uh, you know, I won't do it unless we're actually the account guys now. Yeah. And, you know, we have to be in control of our part of the process. I can't go through a, a third party. No, I'm the, I'm the same. That's, I, I started that rule fairly early on and, Every time I break it, um, I realise why, why I had it in the first place. Um, and I love working directly with people. And I think part of that is I tend to work with smaller clients. And so often it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, my one-person business with their one-person business. And I love that because I feel that I'm really making a difference as well. It's... Uh, I like the smaller, meaningful relationships. So why did you break your rule then with this agency? Oh, because I like Luke and he is my friend. <laughs> which is which is a bad reason to do it as well, because um, potentially you could compromise a friendship if you break a rule and then have a bad experience with someone. And luckily it wasn't too bad, but it's, uh, it's a tricky thing to do. Um, I often, I think the projects as well, I, I, if there's an enticing project, which this was a very interesting project, um, it was lots of very interesting challenges with responsive design that was a good one to get your teeth into. And so I really wanted to do it. Um, and that's when I tend to normally compromise my rules is when there's a particularly appealing project. That's often when my scheduling goes out the window as well. <laughs> I just, I'm not very good at saying no. Did you put any safeguards in place? Any kind of get out of jail cards? Uh, I had a very strict contract. And part of the contract as well is um, I have rules about um, my retainer and things like that. And they had, um, agencies often have longer payment deadlines oh, than yeah. smaller clients. And so to factor that in, I made my, I said, well, my retainer has to be twice as much then, um, to accommodate for that. And so we did that. So it's, I think you can negotiate, um, things as well. You've got to really, they've got to know that if they're taking something from you, they've got to give something back. And I think the key is to try and make sure their relationship's fair and it's not sort of you doing a lot for them and getting nothing out of it. No, I think that's really, really good advice. Was that contract, was that something that you wrote that you made them sign or was it the other way around? Oh, no, something I wrote that I made them sign. 
I, um, I've, I don't think I've actually, aside from NDAs, I've not signed anyone else's contract. No one's actually ever asked me to sign a contract before. I just make sure they sign mine. <laughs> no, that's really, really good advice. We're going to talk about contracts in another show coming up in a couple of weeks because, you know, we've, we've done like 19, almost 20 of these things and we haven't talked about the contract killer. Oh, you've got to do that as well. At some point. So uh, we are going to do a two-parter in a couple of weeks' time on contracts before I go off on holiday. Um, but no, I think that's really, really good advice. And it went well in the end. It did. It was it was difficult. Um tight deadlines meant that it was very stressful i had to work um weekends and evenings um for a couple of weeks uh, because the project ran later than intended um but everyone that's was happy okay though end. nothing wrong with that working hard no uh, yeah, i think you need it was the point at which i was working a weekend where i was staying with my brother and I didn't really get to spend much time with him because I spent the whole time sitting swearing at my laptop in the kitchen. <laughs> so I think uh, working hard, um, but also you need you need time off as well to um, see see family and eat and <laughs> get exercise. Yeah, no, it doesn't do you any good at all to keep working and working and working. No, you you just burn out, and it's very easy to burn out when you're do- when you're working. In an industry that you love, on work that you love, it's very easy to work too hard without realising it. Alex was like this with his uni work before Christmas, and he won't mind me saying it, but, you know, he had a mountain of stuff to do um, and, you know, didn't go home for three three days on end, you know, didn't eat a proper meal for, you know, for weeks. And we went down to pick him up, to bring him back before Christmas. And literally, his, it was, his desk, it was like one of those kind of comic book scenes where literally around his desk was just junk food. Yeah. So overflowing bins with stuff in there. And he looked, he looked shocking. The reason I'm bringing this up is, happy listeners, but it's, uh, it's my son's 21st birthday on Wednesday, the 22nd. Happy birthday, Alex. Oh, happy birthday, Alex. I know. I can't believe he's going to be 21. So, uh, but yeah, burnout, burnout's never fun for, for oh, anybody. No. And I think I've become so well conditioned to having sensible weekends and stopping working at a particular time in the evening that when I don't, which at the moment I'm just going through at the moment, I've, I really suffer for it very quickly. I don't, I don't think you do your best work when you're strung out. No, it's always worth taking that time off to recover because otherwise you'll just carry on doing worse and worse work over a longer period of time until, got... until you probably implode as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm stressing out a little bit at the moment because I've got a workshop to put together for June. So as well as doing, you know, my day job with the client stuff that they're paying for, I have been doing, uh, you know, a lot of evenings. Yeah. And, you know, it gets you down in the end. It does. You know, it's, you it's not look about... outside and it's sun shining, and you think, "What am I sitting here doing this for?" Well, the thing people say that if it's work you enjoy, it's not work, and that's fine and that's true. But it's not healthy to sit in front of a screen for that amount of time. It's not healthy to be focusing in that particular way for that amount of time. Your brain just needs a break to do something different. Yeah, and I'm 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 really really enjoying this job out in Geneva at the moment but I've got this coming week where I'm at home but I'm working on another job and then I'm in Geneva for three weeks solid um, well I'm coming back I come back on a Thursday night so I've got Fridays and Saturdays at home um, and then Sunday I fly out again so you know in the case of three weeks I'll be home for like you know six days yeah well, and if you're spending a significant amount of that traveling too and you know and it's, yeah, so I'm not particularly looking forward to that because then I won't have any balance. So when I come back, you know, weekends are just going to have to be sacred. I'm not going to even look at a screen. Yeah, yeah, you're lots of time outside. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully the weather's going to be nice for that. So we should wrap up, really. Yeah. We should wrap up because I know Anna likes to keep things to an hour. We That's always good. have to. We always have to do what Anna says. <laughs> She's so boss. thanks. Yeah, she, she's most definitely the boss. So listen, thanks for coming in today. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for you at home or in the office or on a bus or on a train for listening to this week's show because we love you too. How can people find you, Laura? Uh, I am Laura Kalbag on 
everything. <laughs> That's uh, Laura K A L B A G. And yeah, I'm I'm the same username on everything. Very predictable. That's good though. Consistency. I'm really frustrated that I can't get malarkey on everything. Oh yeah. Well, part of the bonus of having a very unique name is I'm very Googleable. I don't know if that's a yeah. <laughs> Whether it's a good or, or a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you can email me at he has at unfinished dot bz and Anna she has at unfinished dot bz or you can email both of us at they have at unfinished bz. And all the links we mentioned in this episode are in our show notes. You'll find those at unfinished.bz slash 19. That's the number 19. And to ask us questions and suggest topics, message us on Twitter at unfinishedbz. Thanks a lot again to our amazing sponsors this week. Ghost Lab, synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing taken to the next level. And Slide and Stage, become a better presenter with this full-day intensive masterclass with Aral Balkan. See you next week.